0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by William Gibson's new novel, Agency, a follow up to his New York Times best selling novel, The Peripheral, which Corey Doctorow calls spectacular, a piece of trenchant, far future speculation that features all the eyeball kicks of Neuromancer. Learn more over at WilliamGibsonBooks.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 397 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David L. Craddock. He's written over a dozen books about video games, including Arcade Perfect, how Pac-Man, Mortal Kombat, and other coin-op classics invaded the living room, and Breakout, how the Apple II launched the PC gaming revolution. He's also the author of the young adult fantasy novel, Heritage, the first book in the *Garden Chronicles. And we'll be speaking with him today about his book, Stay a While and Listen, about the history of Diablo, and Rocket Jump, about the history of Quake. And today's show is brought to you by Agency, the new novel by William Gibson. And here's a description of the book. It says, Verity Jane, gifted app whisperer, takes a job as the beta tester for a new product, a digital assistant, accessed through a pair of ordinary looking glasses. Eunice, the disarmingly human AI in the glasses, manifests a face, a fragmentary past, and a canny grasp of combat strategy. Realizing that her cryptic new employers don't yet know how powerful and valuable Eunice is, Verity instinctively decides that it's best they don't. Meanwhile, a century ahead in London, in a different timeline entirely, Wilf Netherton works amid plutocrats and plunderers, survivors of the slow and steady apocalypse known as the jackpot. His boss, the enigmatic Ainsley Lobier can look into alternate pasts and nudge their ultimate directions. Verity and Eunice are her current project. Wilf can see what Verity and Eunice can't, their own version of the jackpot just around the corner, and the roles they both may play in it. William Gibson's powerfully influential neuromancer reshaped a genre. The New Yorker recently called him the authority on the world to come and the writer who has imagined the near future more convincingly than anyone else. Now, William Gibson asks in his latest novel, Agency... What if the last three years had unfolded completely differently? What if we weren't the ones deciding our future? William Gibson's new book agency is available now wherever books are sold. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with David L. Craddock. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So in Rocket Jump,
1: you say. I was the kid who spent nearly every waking hour of his childhood playing video games made by people whose names I could recite as easily as some of my friends could rattle off the names of musicians, artists, movie stars, and professional athletes. So who are some of those game designers whose names you could recite?
2: Probably the first would have to be uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, creator of Mario, Zelda, and and myriad other game franchises for Nintendo. I think that's probably the case for a lot of people in my generation who grew up in the 80s and really uh, got into games in the 90s. Uh, also, John Romero and John Carmack, Tom Hall, Adrian Carmack, and Kevin Cloud, uh the the chief founders of id Software. Uh, it just kind of grew from there. I, I was one of those kids who, you know, I, I had friends who, when they would buy movies, they loved DVDs because with DVDs came more special features. And, you know, like I said in the book, uh, they knew the names of directors and actors. And when I became interested in a game... I would start looking into it. I wanted to know not just the publisher developer, but the, the names of the people working on it. That was pretty tough at first until I got AOL and then, you know, interviews started to crop up. But for a while, I had to lean on Nintendo Power and Game GamePro and uh, electronic, electronic Gaming Monthly for most of that information.
1: Yeah, so let me give you my list. So I definitely have John Carmack and John Romero on it. Uh, I've also got Richard Garriott, Warren Spector, Chris Roberts, Ron Gilbert, Roberta Williams, Mark Crow and Scott Murphy, and uh, Laurie and Corey Cole.
2: Yeah, I'm familiar with all those. I'd add – I wanted to add I love Roberta Williams, Uh, also Jane Jensen. I actually wrote uh, a novella-sized book called Once Upon a Point and Click about the, quote-unquote, queens of adventure gaming, Roberta Williams uh Jane Jensen and and the King's Quest and the uh, Gabriel Knight games which are my favorite adventure games.
1: Yeah, I never uh, actually played the Gabriel Knight. I'm always I'm kind of always kind of sorry that I I never got into those cuz yeah, I've heard a lot of people say really great things about Jane Jensen.
2: But Jane Jensen in particular interested me because, you know, King's Quest was fun, but it was uh especially the first first two or three King's Quests – um, they're still littered with a lot of, of pitfalls that weren't <laughs> oh, really yeah. <laughs> Roberta. Yeah, you know, they weren't Roberta's fault. She was still kind of learning how to design ga- games with the rest of the world. But, like, you could get to the end of those games without all the items you needed to finish. And they were pretty whimsical and lighthearted. And then enter Gabriel Knight, which is um, quote-unquote mature, not just in the blood, guts, sex, and swearing sort of way, but this really dark uh, adult storyline that, that really fascinated me. I was also interested in Jane Jensen because I think even, uh, let's see, those games came out when I was probably around 13 or 14. And even then I had my eye on, on writing and Jane Jensen was interesting because she was someone who wanted to be a writer first and then figured, well, to pay the bills, I should find something that pays. And that was game development. And she actually, I remember I, I, the first time I played first Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, I rented it uh, from Video Safari, and that was kind of a cool thing, because you might know, but uh, computer games weren't often found in rental stores with console games. Um, But then, I I think I was in a a Babbage's at at my local mall, and my dad bought me the Gabriel Knight collection, which had Sins of the Fathers and The Beast Within, but it also came with um, a Sins of the Fathers novel adaptation written by Jane Jensen. And that's the I think that's the main reason I wanted the package. I had both of the Gabriel Knight games individually, but I I was kind of blown away that one of my favorite game writers adapted her novel into a book. And I actually interviewed Jane for Once Upon a Point and Click. We talked a little bit about the novel, and she said her one regret, and you can kind of see this if you read it, was that she almost, she almost <laughs> translated her game script into a novel verbatim, like it kind of reads like almost a walkthrough. And the novel adaptation for The Beast Within actually has its own little plot arcs and characters and kind of feels more like its own beast pun intended
1: <laughs> um so yeah did you have other people as a kid that you could talk to about all these game designers that you were so uh passionate about
2: i think the cool thing about uh being a, a boy growing up in the 80s and early 90s was that if a friend if you discovered another kid at school or in your neighborhood who had video games like Right there, you were best friends, right? <laughs> like that was all the, the the common bond you needed. Um, my closest friend, my oldest friend, who's actually getting married in about six weeks, I'm in his wedding. Uh, was a, was a kid named Jeff. He had. He had so many firsts. Uh, He was the kid who I think every kid has this, who you go to his house or her house and you see all these things, you go running home to your parents Mm -hmm. saying, mom, dad, we got to get this. We need this. He had Nintendo power. He had America online, which was my first uh, ISP. And so it was really through Jeff and, and his, uh, his and his brother's collection of NES cartridges and their Nintendo power subscription that I learned a lot about these video games. And I remember the first time he invited me over. He said, "You know anything about Mega Man 3?" And I really wanted to see what this Mega Man was. And I said, "Oh, sure, I beat that plenty of times." And so I go over to his house and he's playing this game and I kind of act like I know what I'm talking about until <laughs> he finally hands me the controller. And like from that point on, uh, Mega Man became one of my favorite games and as a game series that Jeff and I still talk about to this
1: day. So were you thinking at this time that you might want to be a games journalist or was uh, was like Nintendo Power Was that something that you really, um, you know, wanted to emulate or anything like that?
2: That was, uh, it actually started as a secondary goal. I've been programming off and on since I was nine or 10 years old. Uh, My mom knew that I was, you know, into computers, as they said back then. And, uh, you know, they say, oh, David's good with computers. We should sign him up for these summer courses. She enrolled me in this summer course where, uh, we learned basic on an Apple II. It was like, I don't know, 10 kids in this really stuffy classroom, uh, just l- like learning how to code. And really the highlight was as soon as we had finished that day's assignment, we could play lemonade stand. So that's why I was really mm-hmm. there. Um, so at first I wanted to write games rather than write about games. And, uh, I had, um, some bad experiences in college where I had professors who, <laughs> really didn't seem to know anything, and so they they found out that I did, and they would kind of just lean on me to help guide the class and that became um really stressful and so at this time, I was taking like um sixteen seventeen eighteen credit hours a semester I was also taking I would take two or three literature and writing courses. Uh, just actually for fun. So I was juggling like, you know, low twenties and credit hours, but the writing and the reading actually helped me decompress. And my professor was this little woman. I was about six two and she was maybe five by five feet tall. And she caught up to me after class and she was holding this bundle of, of papers. I think our papers that she was grading. And she said, David, what's your major? And I said, oh, right now it's computer science. I think I want to program games. And she she cut me off by – she stood up on her tiptoes and she bopped me on the head with her bundle of papers. And she said, quit messing around with that stuff. You're a writer. You need to write. And that was the first time – it kind of like – it's almost like that little – that minor blow to the head maybe jiggered something that I hadn't thought about in a long time. Because it was the first time since maybe high school that I had dreamed about uh writing – video games. And I also, you know, I played around with, with novels and short stories, but nothing was really clicking as it rarely does back then. Um, but that's, so that was kind of my in, not only into the games industry, but my in into writing, uh, I started out writing pro bono for a, a now defunct site called my gamer.com. And I think we got paid in, like demo discs and uh, the occasional full release, like to incentivize all of these volunteers who were not getting paid. They said, Hey, if you write X amount of news stories or X amount of previews per month, we'll send you some free stuff. And I thought, well, that's, that's cool. I can try more games. And then it just, it kind of grew from there. Um, I still write a lot of fiction. I've published a, a few novels, sold a few novels as short stories, but, um, I keep coming back to games with books like rocket jump because, I just love telling the stories of of how games are made and and meeting the people behind them. That's kind of – that's almost selfishly why I do it. Like, (laughs) yes, I love Doom and Quake, but the opportunity to actually sit down and and pick the brains of John Romero and John Carmack and that crew is just too good for for me to pass up.
1: Well, right. So uh, so I told you – I mean, you've written a lot of books about different games, but the ones that I've read are Rocket Jump and Stay a While and Listen uh, about Quake and Diablo, respectively – and so could you just talk about kind of what is the process? And these are, you know, several hundred pages. I mean, I, th- I think you said you did several hundred interviews for Stay a While and Listen. Could you just talk about the process of what's involved in putting together one of these books?
2: Stay a While and Listen was um, – it was my first uh, literary nonfiction book, I meaning, you know, a nonfiction book that's that's written so that it reads kind of like a novel. And, um, that one I, I chanced into, um, I, I've been a fan of blizzard since Diablo one. That was my four. I think for a lot of people who've been fans since way back when, uh, their, their gateway drug, if you will, was either Diablo Warcraft two or Starcraft. And for me, it was Diablo. And the funny thing is, uh, I had this uncle, his name is Brad, um, who at the time, well, he'd worked for Novell, which is a, a networking company out in Silicon Valley. I, I don't even know if they're still around. They were pretty big at one time, but he had left there and started his own business with a couple of friends called Apollo In his spare time. He and his fiance now wife, Cindy would play roller hockey and he happened to um, play with a couple of guys named John Moran and David Brevick. Um, David Brevik was one of the co-founders of Condor, which would become blizzard North and at the time, you know, David got to talking with my uncle, and he said, "Yeah, you know, we're just we're a little startup. We could really use someone to to help us with some IT solutions, specifically our network." Uh, at the time, I was uh, I was appalled to learn, and so was my uncle that uh, at that time they were working on Diablo and their method of backup was just like copying things onto like two hundred floppy disks <laughs> a night or something. Um, they didn't have servers any of that. So my uncle got that started, and he became friends with them. They they paid him obviously, but they also said, "Here, you're you're pretty cool. Check out this latest build of Diablo." And my uncle would pass it on to me. And this this I played the f- the first demo they released, which was internal only, a friends and family alpha would pr- probably be called now, which was just two levels and the warrior character. And you know, Diablo required I think like a Pentium sixty megahertz or ninety or something, and um consequently my computer was a little slower so when you would click on the screen my warrior would go stomp 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 he looked like he was wading through waist high water mm-hmm. um but i i played this game for hours i mean i would close my eyes and i would see the grid of the map like burned against my eyelids i was just so taken with this game um fast forward about 11 years uh, i move out to the bay area uh where my fiance now wife and i live for about 4 years and i was writing there doing freelance just hustling hustling uh This was right before the economy bottomed out. So for a while, things were pretty good. I, I was writing. I did freelance, like, instruction manuals for electronic arts. I wrote articles for official Xbox magazines. Um, one of the opportunities I got was through my uncle. He had started this game company, and he had employed a lot of the former Blizzard North developers. Um The studio had had been closed about two years by that point. And uh, there was no nepotism involved. My uncle said, hey, we're looking for a writer, but I'm not going to just give you a job. You need to to interview with Eric Sexton and Michio Akamura, who were a designer and lead artist, respectively, on, on Diablo 1. So I started writing some early materials for Eric and Michio, and they really liked them. That led to a full-time job for <laughs> about four months until we finished our project. The CFO came in and said, all right. Writer, that's redundant, and I got let go. That was quite an experience, having my uncle, who was a, as a father figure um, to me, have, call me into his office with tears in his eyes and say, I'm sorry, you don't have a job anymore. Um, but during that time, I got really close with Eric. I would go over to his house on the weekends, and we would play uh, Earth Defense Force 2017 or 2077, whatever that game was called on Xbox 360, shooting all the bugs for hours. And, you know, after one of these sessions, I'm driving home and I'm thinking, man, it's pretty cool that one of my new besties worked on Diablo. Huh. Someone should really write a book on that. And I was like, oh, wait, I'm a writer and I'm building this this Rolodex of a former Blizzard North developer. So I, I called Eric when I got home and I said, hey, can I interview you about Diablo sometime? And he said, sure. And he Helped me kind of make inroads with Michio, who's actually a very reserved guy and was very reticent to do the interview at first. Um, John Morin and Kelly Johnson, who uh, were programmer and artist respectively, also worked for this company. I got to talk with them. So I was doing all these interviews, um, but I knew that without Dave Brevik and Max and Eric Schaefer, the founders of Blizzard North, then this was a non-starter um, because Diablo in the first place was Dave's idea. And so I, I, I texted my uncle one night and I said, Hey, these interviews are going pretty well. I'd like to talk to Dave. And my uncle Brad, um, texted his number over and I was, I was, pretty, I was pretty nervous. So I dialed Dave and this guy, he just says, hello. And I go, Hi, Dave. My name is David. We're both named David. Isn't that pretty cool? Listen, I'm Brad Mason's nephew and I'd really like to interview you for a book about Diablo. Would that be okay? <sighs> and I, you know, I just kind of breathed it all out and he's silent for five seconds and he goes, Uh, sure. And Dave took a liking to me, introduced me to Max and Eric, and it really just snowballed from there.
1: So, so, actually, Dave, can I jump in there? You can. Yeah, yeah, there was um, so much stuff in this book that, you know, I I don't have uh, anyone, I don't know anyone who worked at Blizzard or anything. So, it was really interesting for me to get this kind of uh, look behind the curtain. And I didn't really realize at the time that they made Diablo kind of what a shoestring operation it was. And you talk about all these financial problems they're having and things like that. But I just want to highlight a couple of details that really jumped out at me. So um one guy talks about when he went in for a job interview, the the guy who interviewed him had his <laughs> feet up on the desk and his feet were bare feet. And yeah. and, and this is Eric Sexton, I guess. He says, you know, right. I want to work here. This this seems so great. Um and uh and also just the uh the the way that people were it was like a club that they were all in and they would just go there they spend all day and all night there playing games making games you mentioned you know Dave Brevik uh, I think you said he was work it was like 20 hours a day or something he was working uh, it was just like this this crazy um sort of startup shoestring atmosphere
2: it, it was and and Dave Brevik and so many other people described it as the golden Times you know in in some reviews people would say well you didn't really talk about the bad stuff and I did touch on a little bit of you know there was some there was growing um unease and and some acrimony between the employees and you know Dave Max, and Eric, whom they called the three bosses um because after they sold the company they obviously got a lot of money and they should because it was their company um but like really my response was and this wasn't just my opinion i asked everyone this i said you know it doesn't sound like during this time there were any troubled waters and they said there really wasn't Everyone there, like, we were driving our beater cars to work, we were buying and assembling these used, these rickety used desks, but everyone there was just having so much fun. Because, you know, this was during an era when virtually none of these guys, other than Dave, Max, and Eric, had any experience building games. Like, Kelly Johnson got his job by sketching Superman on a cocktail napkin for Max Schaefer, and at the time, you know, Condor was building a superhero game, and Max said... That looks good. You want a job as an artist? I mean, it was just such a a, a different time well, back then. Well, Dave, I, I just love stories like that. Dave
1: Brevick says that Diablo was the first program he ever wrote in C. That just blew my mind.
2: Yeah, and the funny thing was, you know, toward the end of Diablo's development in the fall of 96, a, a few programmers from uh, Blizzard Entertainment, a.k.a. Blizzard South, flew up to, to Redwood City. And not only were they helping uh, the Blizzard North folks um, kind of plug Diablo into Battle.net, But they were also kind of teaching them C as they went because a lot of these guys who just like they'd look up something in a book and just kind of try to emulate it and they didn't really know what they were doing. Console games back then were still written in assembly. So they were used to doing assembly for uh, games like Justice League Task Force on Genesis. So everyone was just learning as they went back then.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that was one thing that really struck me is how little – Acrimony there was in at Blizzard and Blizzard North. I mean, there was some, you know, issues about people felt like they weren't being paid what they deserved and things like that. But rel- it was overall, it seems relatively smooth sailing. And that's such a contrast, you know, reading this book together with Rocket Jump, where I mean, it's just like the most hellish, toxic atmosphere um, that you describe it in software from, you know, kind of the creation of Quake through Quake Three or Quake Four or something. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, and I don't think that's a the, that's a coincidence because, you know, by the time id was working on Quake, they were very established and with establishment comes money. Um, that's something I write about in not only rocket jump, but in stay while well and listen 2, which just came out a little over a month ago. Um, you know, Blizzard North and id software had people apply who had played their games and set out to work there. And these people had industry experience. And unfortunately with industry experience often comes baggage and preconceived notions and things like clicks. I mean, that happens in any company, but um, that's definitely something that happened at id Software during the time. You had people kind of really pushing hard for their own ideas. Even if their ideas weren't the best ideas, they wanted their ideas to make the cut because that way they could say, oh, look, I did that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that really struck me was, um, you know, some of the guys from Nine Inch Nails meet John Carmack and John Romero around this time. And, uh, and one of these guys from Nine Inch Nails thinks to himself, like, these guys are the real rock stars. And I'm curious, what do you, what do you think about that? Because, I mean, certainly, you know, like, like you, I grew up following video games much more than music. And so uh, they seems like much bigger, you know, when, when there was sort of the um, partnership with Nine Inch Nails and, and its software. I certainly was much more familiar with its software than Nine Inch Nails. But do you have any sense of, you know, how many albums sold versus how many games <laughs> sold? I, I
2: can't even think about that off the top of my head, but I have that experience. I kind of had that, that same experience um, when I when I meet game developers to this day. I'm, I'm kind of starstruck by them in the same way that a lot of my peers in high school would have been starstruck to be invited backstage to meet Trent Reznor. Um, it was just – it was really wild. You know, American McGee, uh, John Carmack, John Romero, these guys were driving really nice cars at the time, but they weren't thinking of themselves – as rock stars, Romero kind of did because he was kind of the, the Hollywood good looks guy of its software. He was really handsome. He had the flowing black hair, drove the Ferrari. He was the face of it software. So, you know, he was doing all these press events and, and deathmatch spectacles. But even American McGee just remembers kind of the surreal feeling of, of, uh, of being backstage, not because he wanted to meet Trent Reznor, but because Trent and the nine inch nails guys wanted to meet him.
1: Well, yeah, and speaking of American McGee, I mean, it seems like he was a pretty major character in the book, along with Sandy Peterson. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, um, is that because they talked to you the most or they had kind of the most interesting stories or kind of why, why was there that focus on them, do you think?
2: So whenever I do any of these books, and, and Rocket Jump is no exception, what I do is I have a, kind of a pre-generated list of questions for everybody, but I also try to tailor questions for each interviewee. And what happens is during this time, um, you know, companies like Blizzard North and Id Software were really small. I mean, Id Software started with five people. Blizzard North back then, Condor started with three, and so everybody that I talked to would mention these other names because everyone was so intimately involved. To so, to build a game back then, it wasn't like today where you had like a hundred or a thousand people on a team in these really niche positions. Uh, everyone had to be intimately involved, and everyone could leave a clear footprint. And so American McGee when I talk to these folks, I I kind of decide their importance based on two factors. One is objective. I look at what they did, what they say they did, what other people say they did. And, um, you know, American McGee hung out for several months with, with Trent and nine inch nails in new Orleans, making sound effects with them and kind of listening to music. And, you know, Quake's aural experience was, was pretty innovative. I I I think every Quake player can still remember that bong, bong, bong of grenades kind of bouncing mm. off walls. Um but also uh the second factor is more subjective. If I hear stories from American and about American from other people, and as long as I can verify them, I see how they fit into the bigger picture. Um for Rocket Jump, which of course was originally published on, on Shack News as a long read, uh for Rocket Jump, the key was how did id Software's culture reflect their game development, and how did their game development reflect their culture? And id so- or American was kind of one of the more chaotic elements. He freely admitted that he, you know, he was spending a lot of time running around, partying, living the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle with Trent, and um, other people caught on to this. And so, uh, you know, American not only had people actively working against him, but he also admitted that you know, in part, he dug his own grave. And that's something I really wanted to focus on. I wasn't forcing the angle of the story. It was very important to the story because you could see that even though Id was putting out these mega bestseller games internally, they were just a mess. And so subjectively, I look at American and I say, on the one hand, he was very influential. On the other hand, he's very uh, indicative of of just how chaotic and messy things were.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's one of the. I'm, I'm not even sure I want to say who it is, but there's there's one. A developer in the book who just comes off awful uh i think you know who i'm talking about did, uh, yeah. did, did that person do you know has that person read rocket jump or uh reached out to you in any way
2: that person um gave me the cold shoulder when i saw him at QuakeCon last year and has refused to to talk to me again um and is still sticking to his story even though it has been um just kind of torn down with empirical data that that can't be refuted so you know that that it often puts me in an uncomfortable situation that's one of the the first times that happened and i found i found it very difficult to to keep my my objective journalistic distance because you talk so much with these people that they almost feel like friends um I'll occasionally email John Romero just to say like, Hey, how's it going? What's going on? You want to catch up? You want to chat sometime, which is like on the one hand, cool. 16 year old David is just over the moon about that. But on the other hand, I have to be prepared to, to write objectively. And that's really important. I I think that sort of problem is, um, is inherent and kind of endemic throughout games industry and popular culture. You know, there's, there's this weird relationship between press and developers, especially press and publishers, where the publishers kind of expect the press to write glowingly about them in exchange for things like being flown out to press events and and wined and dined with, you know, food and drinks on site. And it's always a little bit shocking to them when, you know, this game that they flew a person out for gets like a six or a seven in a review. Uh, a lot of outlets can lose connections that way. And that's something I, I talked to. So I, I did originally write rocket jump for Shacknews.com. I'm the long reads editor there. And I, I was, I was keeping my editor in chief and the CEO of the site, Asif Khan in the loop. And I said, you know, this is getting like, after I do some of these interviews, I feel like I need to take a shower. And I said, I think when we publish this, I'm going to vet everything, of course, but it could really ruffle some feathers. We could lose our, our connection to id how do you feel about that? And he said, do it. And I really, really respected him for that because he knew that, you know, he wanted me to do my, my journalist thing. He wanted me to get the story. And, uh, I was never, I never covered anything up. I, I never went into any of these interviews with the person we're talking about, uh, or anyone else with, um, ulterior motives. I never, you know, sprung any gotcha questions on them. In many cases, they asked to see the questions first, which I sometimes hesitate to do because then they can kind of rehearse their answers. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it's really cool that that Asif let me, like, you know, hey, go forward with this. If we lose it, we lose it. But this is a really important story.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you say in the book, as a supporter of Id's products since my teenage years, I was left profoundly disappointed by many of the stories I heard, many of which were not fit to print. Which, considering some of the things that were fit to print, I'm not even sure I want to think about what the the not fit to print ones were.
2: Yeah, there was. <laughs> Uh, there's one I'm tempted to tell you, but redacting the names. But, yeah, even that. I think about it, I'm like, holy, I mean, I can't believe that even happened. But, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff there that I said. I would go to him and say, this is a really juicy story, and it would really further the story, but I'm not going to print it. And he was like, yeah, no, we shouldn't print that, but go ahead. This is okay to print. So, I, I was really, Asif and I were in step, every step of the way.
1: So, were you sh- surprised, like, did you have an inkling of how... Of, of the kinds of things you were going to hear or was this kind of blindsiding you that you went in as kind of a naive fan and came out like a jaded, cynical reporter or something? <laughs> I, I definitely had, I would say, a little more than an inkling for a couple of
2: reasons. First of all, you know, Rocket Jump was um, not even my second or third book. I, I'd been writing a lot of these at the time and so I, I'd heard quite a few sordid tales. Um, but um, also, you know, I'd read Masters of Doom. And I was pretty aware of how these seeds of chaos were, were planted. In fact, one, one, um, of my priorities when I write about something that's been written about extensively, as a lot of these big games from the eighties, nineties and early aughts were, is what's the angle on this? I don't want to just, I didn't want to rewrite David Kushner's Masters of Doom. And so I reread Masters of Doom and I noticed that, you know, he kind of touched on Quake, but he didn't go as in depth on it as he did say doom Wolfenstein and commander Keen. So that's actually where I came up with kind of the thesis of rocket jump. It was going to be all right, quake and nineties FPS games besides quake, you know, kind of games influenced by ID. But I, because of that, because for example, the person we've been um, alluding to, he wasn't, he didn't really have a starring role uh, in masters of doom. In fact, if I recall, he was hardly mentioned as anything other than what he was in a professional capacity, which was, you know, he was uh, one of the designers on various ID games and I was, in that regard, I was very blindsided by a lot of the stories I heard from, especially the Quake and Quake 2 days, <laughs> I would say. Quake 2 is is really even more fascinating than Quake 1. Like, if you look at Quake 1, that game still gets ribbed a lot by people because it, it is kind of all over the place, right? Each each episode starts in, like, a military base, and then suddenly you're transported to a Lovecraftian castle. That was very reflective of of its uh, culture at the time it was almost like looking through an open window and just seeing it's almost like the meme of the dog surrounded by a room on fire saying fine this is fine <laughs> but quake 2 is really more of a tinted window like quake 2 is actually a really solid and cohesive game like the campaign i think is hugely underrated with interconnected levels it, it was kind of doing what half-life did a year later of course half-life was more innovative with things like scripted events but you know the multiplayer was solid the single player was solid and yet if you had rolled down that tinted window, it wasn't just on fire like there were bombs going off in there it was just it was just just absolutely wild well uh during that time
1: well yeah so I mean so I was a huge huge fan of of doom and quake you know that was kind of my high school years and mm-hmm. um but I always I have some serious issues with quake's game design and mm-hmm. so it was uh kind of um validating for me to to see John Romero in your book even say that you know, he, he, he says, I'll just read the quote. He says, I think Doom is a little more special to me than Quake just because Doom turned out exactly the way I wanted it to, while Quake didn't. And, um, you know, this is something I, you may disagree with me, but I mean, some of the stuff in Quake kind of drives me crazy. Like the rocket jumping, I've never been a fan of because <laughs> I feel like it just looks kind of silly. These characters just flying a hundred feet through the air all the time. <laughs> and um and it also like i I think one of my big problems with quake's design as opposed to doom or doom 2 is that at least in the original rules in doom you could pick up each weapon once and then you had a certain amount of ammo and you would run out of ammo for your shotgun you're like i know i got to use the chain gun or whatever and the Mm -hmm. longer you stayed alive this 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 is more for like one-on-one death match but the longer you Mm -hmm. stayed alive the harder it got to keep winning whereas in quake the more that you win you know you're you're Armor and health is up to 200 and you're like run, pattern running the quad damage and you're just completely like a, you're like an invincible god compared to players who are just <laughs> respawning. And yeah. it makes it, it I think it really drives away casual players or players who are just playing against someone. They're a little bit worse than because if you're like 10 percent worse than somebody in quick, they're just going to stomp you 25 to nothing.
2: Um, oh, Oh no, I I completely agree. We have a lot in common, and not just our, our wonderful and, and great first names. Like, <laughs> I here's the thing: I'll actually send you a video of this. Um, for Shack News was two, I guess two almost two years ago in 2018, we went to QuakeCon, and I was there. It was kind of a writing retreat. Asif said, "All right, you can write all day, but at night we're hosting this uh, Quake Quakeholio tournament. Quake Quakeholio was the original name, one of the original names of Shack News, because it started as a Quake fan site." And he said, I want you to do commentary for the tournament since you know a lot about these games. I mean, we were playing everything, Quake 1-2, uh, Quake 3 Arena. Uh, we even had Commander Keen as a special surprise at the end. Uh, and he said, I'm also doing something I'm calling mini-boss battles, where I want some of the editors on site. And there were just three of us. I want them to do special one-on-one bouts with the competitors. I'll choose them randomly, and here's how it will work. If my editor wins, I get the prize that I'm putting up. But if they win, they get the prize and i was the doom mini boss i i cleaned house i'll have to send you the video it's hilarious i sent it to john romero he thought it was like awesome because i love doom doomed i i feel the exact same way about doom that romero does the next year just last year i played quake the same thing happened this this player who was very good admittedly got an edge on me he had you know he knew the spawn points he had the power-ups he had all the ammo he had the backpacks I I could not gain a foothold, and the whole time I'm not a very competitive person, but I'm just kind of sitting there grinding my teeth because I'm kind of like this freaking game, man. Like it's just it was really really frustrating to to play that. I I, I do I do think that um, Quake was Quake was very messy. In fact, a lot of people ask me so because of Rocket Jump. They're like, do you think that it would be really cool if ID would reboot Quake? Like, wouldn't that just be awesome if they gave it the Doom 2016 treatment? I said no. Quake is dead, and I can't even really go into the reasons why, and I'm like, it makes me a little sad, but Doom has kind of always been the the big breadwinner there, and it makes complete sense to me that it chose to to push that game as hard as they have over over Quake. And nothing nothing against Quake, but I'm, I'm very much a Doom person. I think it's always been a much more refined and balanced experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, in Quake, pretty much the rocket launcher is the best weapon in almost any situation. And so people are all only, almost only ever used the rocket launcher. There's just sorts of all sorts of really, you can tell that it was sort of like shoved out the door. Half. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, even a rocket jump, you know, John Romero has a really good quote and he says, you know, really at id, we'd been working these long insane hours, like, you know, 48, 72 hour marathons of just coding and eating pizza and drinking soda and, and hanging out. But it always felt like fun. Quake was the first game where I felt like we were crunching and it just wasn't fun at all. And in fact, the rocket jumping, I can kind of let slide because, you know, in the book I mentioned, that wasn't something they built in. They discovered that because a player discovered it. And they kind of all, they remember gathering around their computers and watching one of the first, uh you know, in Quake and in Doom, you could record yourself playing and upload it and you had to you had to play the videos back in the games and they they were all kind of amazed that rocket jumping even existed and they realized it broke the levels and that was because well you know they didn't make it but after that it became such a big thing along with bunny hopping which is also kind of irritating that yeah it kind of had to become part of the games going forward because the community demanded it. It was one of those things.
1: Well, the thing I do hold them accountable for, which I know from modding Quake, is that your own rockets arbitrarily do half as much damage to you as they do to opponents. <laughs> which I don't. Yeah. I, I think is is just a really bad design decision um, and very you know unbalances the game. But it seems like through all the iterations of Quake, yeah, that the community got really infatuated with all these sort of bugs and exploits, and then they felt pressured to keep implementing them in every successive version uh, up and through quake champions which i mean i haven't played but this is just my understanding and you know which again i think drives away new players because there's all these like quake specific um exploits that give you a huge advantage if you've spent decades honing your skills in them and are just really i think alienating for for new players
2: yeah, Quake unfortunately has this reputation also a tradition of being kind of broken in in ways good and bad. I didn't I couldn't write a lot about Quake Champions because we published Rocket Jump on Shack News in late 2017, and at that time Quake Champions what, had just entered early access. Uh this was so early that it was still only available through the Bethesda launcher, which was a pain. But um I so Asif and I, we did a podcast and we also co-wrote an article that we formatted as kind of a conversation between us. And he said, how, how, how much of a success chance, a chance of success would you give Quake champions? And I said, honestly, I don't think this game has much of a chance because if you haven't played Quake, you're going to, you're going to step into a death match and you're going to get blown to smithereens and you're going to say, screw this game and go back to Overwatch. And, you know, speaking of, of Quake being broken, like, Quake Champions, in a lot of ways, was just a a modern day reskin of of Quake 3 Arena and uh, and Quake Live. But they also decided to roll in um, classes with special abilities like Overwatch because, hey, Overwatch is popular. We should do this. But they didn't think about how that would gel, or more accurately, that it wouldn't gel with Quake's um, largely skill based gameplay models and systems. And, you know, that game from the start there were all these little things like it didn't even have bots. And the argument against that is, well, playing against humans is more fun. I said, yeah, but how do you learn the maps? How did you learn maps in Quake three? You loaded up, a level, and you put a bot in and made it as dumb as possible, and then you just kind of ran around and you learned weapon positions and spawn locations. In Quake Champions, you couldn't do that. So if you were a new player, not only were you trying to figure out how to play this game that really hadn't changed since 1999, you were also learning against people who were pros and just cleaning house with you, which is just does not make for a fun experience.
1: Yeah, so so that's sort of my I, – I, I guess that's enough ranting for me about Quake. So yeah, I'm going to yeah. move on to ranting about Diablo 3. Um, okay. So, yeah, so I love uh, Diablo and Diablo 2. And I remain open to being persuaded that Diablo 3 is a good game. But my experience with it – you know, I hadn't played a lot of video games for several years just because I was so busy with writing and podcasting and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, my girlfriend and I got this Xbox because uh, we wanted to play some couch co-op games. And so I got Diablo 3. And literally, we played it for eight hours or something. And I didn't feel challenged at all. Like, I, I've, there's like even a button you can press to heal yourself. I felt like I don't even need to press it. I'm not taking any damage anyway. We played through the whole first episode, you know, and it would, like, you're constantly getting new weapons and new skills that you have to figure out and configure and everything. And I felt like I didn't need any of it because I wasn't taking any damage anyway. So I'm just curious, um, you know, as a Diablo expert, should I give Diablo 3 another chance? Or do you share that uh, assessment?
2: I I would say yes, but there are a lot of caveats. Um, I could rant about this for hours, but I'll try to keep it to bullet points. Um, I think that so the, the reason Stay While and Listen went from one book, which would still not be out if I'd stuck to that route, to a trilogy was two reasons. One, my wife talked sense into me and said, you need to split this up. And two, I did that because I could look at each of the three Diablo games and say, yeah, you know what? Each of these games is very emblematic of the era in which it was made and the culture of the Blizzard company that made it. Um, I think each game does something particularly well. I think that Diablo 1 has the best atmosphere. I still, to this day, love the fact that you never get the same set of quests when you play. I think that Diablo 2 had the best progression, but I think that Diablo 3 has the best end game which is this double-edged sword right because until you get to the late stages which is really hitting level 70 you have to play (laughs) until level 70 and the progression is the end that game is just just abysmally dull um there was actually a very public kerfuffle, fluffle which was interesting to me as a historian because uh up until this point um the, the enmity between Blizzard North and, and South or entertainment had never been public. I knew about it. And at times it was couched in a quote unquote friendly competition. But, um, Dave Brevik gave an interview, I think, to Inc gamers a few months after Diablo 3 came out. And mind you, this game sold millions of copy. It scored really high. But after the, the, the thrill of playing a new Diablo War off, people said, Hey, the auction house is a problem. The progression is boring. And that's another one of my problems with the Enthusiast Press. We're so excited to play a new game that we don't stop and think about what we're playing. Um And the interviewer asked Dave, he said, you know, is this the game you would have made? And Dave was actually very diplomatic, which for him is kind of an achievement <laughs> because he can be a blunt guy. Uh He's not trying to be hurtful. He's just, you know, he's a programmer's programmer. He's just, he speaks his mind. And he said, well, it's not the game I would have made. And Jay Wilson, the director of Diablo 3 at the time, um, responded on Facebook by saying – I think someone, another Blizzard employee, I won't name, shared this interview and was really mad. Jay Wilson responded saying, quote, fuck that loser, Um, which is very indicative to me of a lot of the attitude at Blizzard South, Um, you know, pulling back a bit.
1: And and just why everyone should stay off Twitter, just in general. Oh, oh,
2: just stay off Twitter and Facebook everything, yeah. But, like, this was also very indicative of a lot of the relations between Blizzard South Blizzard South always felt like Blizzard North couldn't have made Diablo without them. Blizzard North felt like Blizzard South couldn't have published Diablo without them. What a, One thing I'm trying to show in the Stay While and Listen trilogy is that both studios were actually integral. Blizzard South brought polish and Battle.net. Blizzard North brought personality. The reason Diablo 1 and 2 were so successful, critically, as well as commercially, it was because of this perfect storm of personalities at both studios. Diablo 3, yes, it sold well, it reviewed well, but a few months after, a lot of players were saying, actually, you know what, this game kind of sucks. And wh- one thing about it that, that I didn't like was um, to see all of your skills and skill modifiers called runes, you had to hit what was then the max level of 60. This, to me, was a huge problem, because if you remember in Diablo 2, you can get to the the most advanced skills of your skill tree by the time you hit level 30. But the max level is 99. So this gives you opportunities to sample almost like every skill in your in your three skill trees and decide which ones you like. Most players statistically play through the game once and then don't play it again. The people that, you know, play through the different difficulty levels back then, it was normal to nightmare to hell, go on battle net and hit max level statistically, they are a very, very small percentage of players. But Diablo 3's designers made the the base game to where you couldn't see everything the game had to offer unless you kept playing it over and over, when most players didn't do that. So they had this public kerfuffle. Uh, Jay Wilson um, decided, quote-unquote, to to take another position within Blizzard. He's since retired from games, and he writes books now, I guess. Um, But, you know, a new director came in, and completely overhauled Diablo 3. It started with the uh, the Resurrection of Evil. <laughs> that might be the Doom 3 expansion. I confuse those <laughs> two a lot. Um, but, you know, he overhauled it. He made this end game, which is Adventure Mode and Rifts, which kind of bring back that classic Diablo feel. Uh, in fact, if you want my professional Diablo expert opinion, the best version of Diablo 3 is the Eternal Collection on Switch because unlike the other platforms that make you play through the... Uh, just awful campaign with the terrible writing first to unlock the end game content. Switch lets you do it right from the get go. You can make a level one character and go into adventure mode, which is where the game is really fun.
1: Well, Um, well, what you're saying, it kind of reminds me of, I mean, I'm I'm forgetting what the exact reference is, but there was this battle in the ancient world. This is in real history where, (laughs) where one side, they were so confident of victory that they brought along manacles to chain up their enemies after they defeated them. (laughs) And then they ended up, being the ones who were defeated and they were chained up with their own manacles that they had brought. And it it seems like blizzard had the same attitude of um, six, you know, of of sort of um, Diablo three is bound to be a success. People are going to want to play this for 10 years to come. Like, let's focus on making it, you know, fun for those people who are going to play it for the next 10 years and sort of lost Mm -hmm. sight of like, let's make it fun for people who are going to play it for the first hour.
2: And you know, they, they did. And the problem is it's hard on some level to argue with them because it made a lot of money and it scored very well at launch again. Um, But um, the the funny thing was, I think that people were upset about Diablo three for the wrong reasons. You know, I don't know if you were, if you were following uh, the game's development, but, there was this big stink raised in the community when the screenshot came out with a rainbow yeah. in the background.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, people said the cartoony oh, graphics. Yeah.
2: yeah, and people said, Oh, Diablo doesn't have color, what's that about? And I said, I mean, if you look at Diablo too, there were deserts, jungles, snowy mountains. That game was actually pretty colorful. They were complaining about the wrong content. The problem with me is that to a point, Blizzard Entertainment makes great games, but In a lot of ways, their games are homogenous. Diablo 3 incorporated their sense of humor, which is very irreverent, which drill doesn't really have a place in Diablo's world, right? Like, if Act 3 of Diablo 3, you're in this besieged town where there are soldiers dying around you, but they're lying in their bloody cots, cracking jokes. Like, it's just so discordant. And they even, they tried to fit in these, these goofy one-liners. Like you might remember in the first act, you come across King Laoric's spirit and he said, who dares let the warmth of life enter my tomb. And this really like overacted, overproduced voice. And the whole reason for that was, oh, because, okay, I get it. That's what Leoric said in Diablo one, when you entered his tomb, but it was so forced, they were trying to be funny. Diablo, you can have a sense of humor. Geed in Diablo 2, if you have one of his secret comments is, I'm going to party like it's nine ninety nine. But there, the context was right because Geed was this guy who literally stands around smoking the equivalent of weed all day. So he's kind of supposed to be spacey. You can contrast that with Farnham, the townsperson in Diablo 1, who is drunk all the time. And at first you're like, oh, that guy's funny. And then you realize, oh, he's drunk because he saw awful things in the cathedral and he's drinking himself to death so he forgets. Like, that's Diablo. Yeah. Well, That's kinda, what that game is supposed to be.
1: It kind of seems like they got the memo for Diablo 4 because all the screenshots and everything just looks exactly like Diablo 2.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, every, like skill trees, even, you know, skill, I think they're calling them traits or something. Like, that game... I, I kind of half jokingly, half seriously refer to Diablo 4 as Diablo 2, the remake, because that's really, I mean, look at the classes they've unveiled so far. Barbarian and Druid, like so far, that's, that's two out of, uh, out of seven. I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, an assassin or an Amazon show up, or, I'm sorry, they, they unveiled, um, barbarian and sorceress, I think, but I'm sure the druid will make an appearance at some point.
1: Yeah. Well. So, Okay, so let me um, ask you about, I'm curious to hear more about just sort of the world of um, games journalism from your point of view. And I'm Mm -hmm. just going to, I'll tell you who I've interviewed so far in the show. Like you mentioned, I interviewed David Kushner, um, Mm -hmm. and then Wes Loker, Matt Barton, Julian DeBell, and Blake J. Harris. I guess I should say these are the authors of Braving Britannia, Dungeons and Desktops, Play Money, and Console Wars. And I was just curious if you, um, how familiar you are with those guys and have you um, interacted with them at all?
2: Uh very familiar with four out of the five. Um I know Matt, he and I have, have talked a lot. We've worked together a little. Um uh, David Kushner I've emailed a couple times. Funny story about Blake, I know he wrote the console wars funny thing is i get this email in my stay well and listen inbox saying hey david i i love stay well and listen i'm really looking forward to it he'd read some preview chapters or something and he said i'd love to maybe get together and trade books sometime and i was like well this is weird who is this guy who's just like gonna give me one of the books in his library i guess or <laughs> one of mine and i said oh sure blake you know it'd be nice to meet sometime and then like a week goes by And I hear about the console wars. I'm like, that name seems familiar. So I searched my inbox. I'm like, Oh, that's the author of the console wars. So now Blake and I talk every now and then, but I did not know that was him at first. But, um, Wes is a really cool guy. He actually lives an hour or so away from me. We've been trying to, to meet up, um, uh, Matt Barton is is really cool. You know, I love Matt Chad. I've reviewed some of his books. Uh, he's he's uh, and I've been on the Matt Chat show a couple of times for Rocket Jump and Stay a While and Listen, actually. So yeah, those are all uh, really great writers, really great journalists.
1: It's funny with Matt because he kind of sees Diablo. I mean, he, I think he's half joking, but he kind of sees it as sort of the downfall of uh, CRPGs. Do <laughs> You ever like argue with him about that or? No,
2: not really, because I I see where he's coming from. I think a lot of people view. Diablo to RPGs what Mist was to adventure games where it's just really oversimplified um and it takes a lot of the thinking out of it. Uh the funny thing was like even that's kind of a um it's a really biased view and I, and I don't I don't argue with it but you know Sierra kind of brought about that quote unquote downfall themselves with the advent of the Smart Cursor in King's Quest 7 and Gabriel Knight 2. The idea is that rather than having to choose a verb icon from the the UI you, the smart cursor, whatever you click on, the game will just take the action that it, that you need to take for it. Um, so, you know, these, you know, these, uh, these innovators in the adventure space kind of, um, made their own games oversimplified as well.
1: Well, when you talk about the smart cursor, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the like old school people. I'm still mourning the loss of the text parser. And, mm-hmm. you know, cause I felt like it was so, and I mean, I know, I mean, I guess they had to change it cause they wanted to sell overseas and, you know, People complained that the, it wasn't understanding what they were trying to say and stuff like that, but I felt like I learned so much about how to read and how to type and how to spell uh, from the text parser, and, you know, you would, like, come up with funny things, like, you know, I mean, there's this famous thing that Al Lowe and Leisure Suit Larry, he would just sit and watch people play the game, and then anything that they typed in, he would write it down, and then he would come up with some funny response that the game would give back. <laughs>
2: and, the thing, Yeah. yeah. Well, I I could kind of see, I I totally see where you're coming from. I think the problem is, again, looking at it objectively, um, the text parser was a lot more advanced uh, in general than graphics at the time. I remember there was this object in King's Quest, this like brown pixelated lump. (laughs) And I remember typing like pick up rock, pick up stone. It turns out it wasn't either of those. It was like a nut or something. And, you know, if I think the flaw of the text parser is, if you don't give it exactly what it's looking for, then you're going to sit there just scratching your head. On the other hand, if you make it too flexible, then you take the thinking out of it. But I agree. Like as a kid, I I really I, I played text adventure games before I played point and click adventure games, and I I liked that interactive component, and I really felt like it was also kind of expanding my vocabulary in a way because I really had to think of synonyms back then.
1: I just feel like you know with, with like IBM's Watson that won Jeopardy and stuff, there must be a way to have a text parser that can figure out what you're trying to say, even if you don't type in the exact right thing these days, you know?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think there, there's, there's definitely a place for that type of venture game to come back because especially in Kickstarter, the gold rush of Kickstarter funded games is kind of, kind of dried up, you know, you still see them pop up occasionally, but, um, you know, if if a game like like Wasteland or a Tim Schafer style adventure game can come back, then then why not a really sophisticated uh, text-based adventure game? I'd, I'd be totally behind that.
1: Actually, speaking of Kickstarter, one of the questions I had for you is: you know, John Romero tried to do a kickstarted game called Black Room and mm-hmm. was not successful, and a lot of other developers from that era have been. You know, like in Exile and stuff like that. I was just curious: do you think that it was just that? Uh, the first person space is uh, overcrowded already or like, wh- why, do you, why do you think that black room um, has never uh, well caught fire? You know,
2: I, I think with all due respect to John, because I like him a lot, I would even consider him a friend. Uh, I think that black room, black room in particular didn't work because maybe there was a little bit too much ego involved. Uh, I can't speak for him and he's, he's not even, he's told me like, I can't really talk about black room because it's not necessarily dead yet. Um, but my interpretation was he felt like he could launch a Kickstarter with Adrian Carmack, two of the five, you know, original it guys, and the money would just kind of come rolling in. And maybe that's not it. I could be completely wrong, but that's the impression I got just as a fan from the outside looking in, um, you know, Kickstarter differentiates itself from a lot of other crowdfunding platforms, such as Indiegogo in that with Kickstarter, you, you have to have um, you have to have a product more or less ready or you have to have pretty strong evidence that you can build that product indiegogo you can just start whatever you want and you can say up front or not hey i'm going to use the money to build this it doesn't exist in any form yet that's like when i when i kick-started a stay well and listen two a couple of years ago i had sample chapters ready to go because i wanted people to know that hey you're not just going to give me money um I did end up having to work on the book for a while after that, but not because it wasn't, not because it didn't exist, but because of other factors. But I, I made sure to show, like, hey, here's here's chapters. This these exist. These are real. Uh, we're ready to go. I don't think that was the case with Black Room, but again, um, I can't say definitively.
1: Yeah, it seems like with Kickstarter, you have to have something amazing to show, like like Star Citizen. You know, some footage or something that look, that just really gets people excited. Or, I mean, yeah. some, some sort of um, hook. I mean, like, I was really struck, you know, Sandy Peterson, um, who we mentioned earlier, he did a Kickstarter for a, uh, if I'm remembering this right, it was sort of like an iPhone Cthulhu Wars kind of game. And mm-hmm. they didn't hit their goal, and the goal was fairly low. And then they redid it as a board game with plastic figures that you would get. And then it got like over a million dollars or something. So, you know, yeah,
2: the, yeah, it, it is a combination of factors, right? Like that was probably the smart move for Sandy to make from the get go because he came from a board game background. Um, also you do have to follow trends. Like if you look on Kickstarter after video games, board games and card games are still a really hot commodity. So those are bound to get more attention. Um, yeah, you you just have to have something ready to go and it's 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 combination of preparedness, reputation and kind of following the money, so to speak.
1: I thought like in your book in Rocket Jump, I got a really interesting picture of Sandy Peterson that I'd never gotten before in that like how just this, this idea that, you know, when he created Call of Cthulhu, that um the people at Chaosium were like, oh, H.B. Lovecraft's a hack, like, this sucks, <laughs> and he had no idea, and then it ended up kind of um, rehabilitating Lovecraft's uh, literary reputation. I, I just had no idea any of that had happened.
2: Yeah, that was really interesting as well, which is kind of why I like to do those really uh those deep dives into people, because, you know, I, I could have started with, with Sandy joining Ed for Doom, but... I wanted to, to find out about his his Lovecraftian background because, you know, Quake has obviously very strong Lovecraftian influence, and Sandy was, even Romero said, like, make sure to talk to Sandy. He's, like, the Lovecraft guy. The really, like, the quirkiest, weirdest stuff in Quake, namely everything in Episode four was all Sandy. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to set the table that way in Rocket Jump.
1: Yeah. Um, there was another uh, quote in the book where you I mean, this is pretty straightforward, but you basically say uh, on a more personal note, I regard the 1990s as my favorite era in video game history. And I was just wondering if you could talk more about why that is.
2: So the, the 1990s again, uh, not to overuse a cliche, which is re- redundant, but it, w- it really was this perfect storm. Like I, I started playing games. I came to the Atari pretty late. I had a, an aunt who gave me an Atari 2600 junior, which was kind of a re-release. And I loved the NES, but if you look at the NES, so many game types, game genres were embryonic. Um, my, my favorite example is Super Mario Brothers 3. It is hands down one of the best games ever made, but. I am one of those people who believes that Super Mario World is that much better because it built on Mario 3 and just took it further than anyone could have imagined. I mean, the world map was so much more intricate, the levels were longer, the concepts were so much cooler, uh secret exits, um flying even was refined, making the jump from the the leaf to the feather. And so the 90s brought I specifically the Super Nintendo, I think is is probably still my favorite console of all time because you know, even though developers were still learning then you had a lot of game types such as the the two d platformer the action adventure game um i e the the zelda like um that had been kind of experimented on before and could come at you now with arguably the best versions of those. The other reason was just computer games were just so wildly innovative at the time there was just so much happening um I remember the first time my friend and I, well, Jeff and I connected via modem to play Doom 2. It was just pretty mind blowing. I mean, up until that time, Deathmatch was just something we read about on uh, message boards and, and, and AOL chat rooms. And to actually try it was cool. And then we went well, from that. It was
1: pretty mind blowing after you spent three hours trying to get your modem to connect.
2: Oh, well, that, that, that too, right? And like, you know, oh, your, your teenage sister needs the phone. <laughs> and so, you know, mid rocket jump, you're, you're disconnected. But then we went from that to Diablo, which just simplified everything. Battle.net is just click, click, create your name, pick your character, and you're in. Uh, Battle.net had its fair fair share of problems, namely hacking, but connectivity was not one of them. It was again, mind-blowing. Um, modding, Doom modding, I think the first mod, like a lot of people, I downloaded, uh, okay, I don't remember clearly. It was either a Barney mod or a Power Rangers mod, complete with like sound effects and sprites, and I was just like, wow, I someone changed the game I bought which has completely reignited my interest in this game. Whereas, you know, console games back then, there were no updates, there were no expansion packs, you bought the game on the shelf, and once you beat it, that was pretty much it. And it was just, the 90s was just this wildly innovative time. Um, I think games are still great today, arguably better, more sophisticated. But a lot of what we're doing kind of feels predatory with things like microtransactions and free-to-play games, which Nintendo, I feel, aptly and responsibly calls free-to-start. Um, uh, you know just there's a lot of iteration early access I think is like this blessing and curse where you get to see something cool but who knows if it'll ever be finished games back then I don't want to say they were they were better but they were just it was this kind of perfect moment where you know their art still looks good today the gameplay had been refined and yet was you could still see it growing it was just a magical time
1: yeah well and just this idea that you can have this sort of like team of you know less than a dozen people making a game oh, yeah. that becomes the best-selling game ever. I mean, I don't know if maybe that still happens with the indie stuff, but I I, 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 I don't think so. But, um, you know, it, it just seems like I wonder if uh, games journalists in 20, 30 years will have the same stories to tell like you do in Rocket Jump and um, stay a while and listen. Or, you know, is a story about, a, about games made by 100 people just not as interesting of a story?
2: I'll answer this as I do so many questions with an anecdote. I, I like to watch a few streamers, but occasionally I'll get frustrated with them because I'll see them playing a game. And sometimes it's one of my favorites. Like I I love, I love the dark souls games. Um, and I'll watch them play and not understand something. And the reason they don't understand it, isn't it because they're trying to grok it. It's because they're, you know, answering tweets or looking at their phone or responding to chat, uh, one reason I think that one problem I think games have today is that you'll have um these really talented teams who will work years and pour millions of dollars into creating something great, and then it comes out and it has its fifteen seconds of fame, if that, and then it's gone forever because there are just so many distractions today. Um, even TV shows. I think there was there have been so many reports published saying like uh, an alarming percentage of people watch TV while they're on their phone, and they're like, oh, I can't follow the show at all. Like, well, no, no crap. You're not really paying attention to it. You're not watching TV like maybe we used to. And, again, this isn't – I don't like to be one of those people who says, you know, oh, the good old days, because I don't think that's that's a real thing. But um, it is It is definitely harder to showcase good games, not only because – like, there there are so many games coming out now. This used to be considered a slow period. But over the next three months, you may know, there are some real bangers, as the kids say today, coming out and yet a lot of those games will probably get overlooked or sell below expectations and their teams get laid off because it's there's just maybe arguably too many games coming out it's it's um it's a spoil of of riches i think which comes with problems of its own
1: well one person in the book says that it used to be that every game made money basically and it wasn't a lot of money but people were kind of more relaxed because there was you know it wasn't so cutthroat whereas now it's more of a um you know, winners and losers, rich get richer kind of situation.
2: Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, games take so long to make and are so expensive to make that we're seeing a lot of genres out down to one or two examples. You know, uh, the, the FPS is is a perfect example. Sure, there are a lot of really cool indie FPS games out there and they do well for indie games. But in the AAA space, which is kind of where the, the genre, I don't want to say it started because it was, eh, that's not really true. It was independent for a long time. But look at the variety of the nineties. That's something else I love about the nineties. I neglected to mention there was, there were so many different types of shooters. You had Doom, Duke Nukem, Quake, Unreal, also weird stuff like Kingpin. Um, which just, I, that's on the tip of my tongue today because I read that it's getting remastered on Switch of all platforms. Uh, now if you look at, uh blockbuster budget fps games it's call of duty and battlefield and even overwatch i mean this is a blizzard game blizzard to me is still one of the 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 juggernauts of the industry but overwatch isn't nearly as big as as call of duty and and battlefield so there's just less there's less room for experimentation um which is i think why a lot of indie developers were originally employed at bigger companies like activision and ubisoft they were just kind of tired of having to follow um, financial forecasts and, and wanted to experiment and I think that's great I mean uh, the the variety of, of games in the indie space is great but even that's crowded now I mean 10 years ago maybe maybe more like seven or eight it used to be that if you got front uh, top spot placement on the app store then you were gonna make it big now uh, that might m- not mean anything just because there's you know there's so many games coming out,
1: yeah. Well, speaking of experimentation, I want to mention this one thing from the, I mean, one of the big takeaways from Stay a While and Listen to Me is this, is this situation. So, um so Diablo was originally designed as a turn-based game. And, um, and the designers, you know, who have been imagining this in their heads since high school, like for years, um, are like, we want it to be turn-based, we want it to be turn-based, very like Matt Barton. Matt Barton would approve, right? That's <laughs> what the hardcore <laughs> RPG players, you know, want. And then you know, kind of everyone is like, this is going to be so much more popular if it's real time, and they really uh, drag their feet. And then there's just one night where um, David Brevik realizes that it wouldn't be that hard to change it and and see what it, how it plays as real time. And he does it. He says like, oh, this is amazing, and that just says so much to me. Like, I th- I think that that's you can um generalize that lesson to a lot of different artistic pursuits where. A lot of times people are saying to you, like, you should do this. You should do that. And you're like, no, I want to do it this way. This is the hardcore way. And then if you, if you just like do it the other way, you're in a much better position to compare. You know, you can always change it back. Whereas there's just such a, um, inertia to not changing something that you've done. And I just think that lesson of like, we'll try it both ways before you make up your minds. Uh, a lot of people could benefit from that lesson.
2: I absolutely agree. I think that's one of the most powerful parts of the book, uh, completely because of, of that lesson that Dave learned. And if you look at the context of, of Dave's life at the time, you know, Diablo wasn't out yet. It wasn't making millions of dollars. Uh, Condor wasn't making millions of dollars. A lot of them, including the founders, were living paycheck to paycheck to the point where, uh, Dave Max and Eric all told me, hey, if Blizzard hadn't fought to, to have Davidson Associates, their parent company, acquire us when they did, we would have had to close our doors. And you know what would have happened? They would have just gotten another job or started another company. There was a lot less on the line for them back then. These days, a lot of developers at these big studios, they want to experiment. They want to take that plunge. But the people with their, their fingers on the pulse of the finances say, nope, can't do that. You gotta do another Call of Duty or this or another Assassin's Creed. And, you know, not to denigrate those franchises. They've done, they've done great things. But just today, I believe just today it came out that of the last decade, 10 of the 15 best selling games were all Call of Duty games. That just kind of shows you that there's not really a lot of breathing room for first person shooters in particular that want to try something else.
1: So, if someone listening to this wants to be a games journalist, write these sort of long-form narrative books about video games. Do you have advice for them?
2: Uh, my advice is that uh, you need to learn how to write. Um, I, I work with so many people in the enthusiast press, and I don't want to throw anybody under the bus because I, I sound like a snob, but I don't mean to. Genuinely, uh, they can't write. They're just kind of happy to be here, as the saying goes. They just care about games or comic books or movies or whatever. The the quote unquote nerd culture, and they just want to contribute to it and get free stuff. If you can't write, um, you're not gonna, you're not gonna last long. You know, uh, you just, you need to have the fundamentals down. You need to combine. It's, it's like, you know, I remember back in Nintendo Power, kids would write letters saying, Hey, I, I can beat Mario in 15 minutes, which to speedrunners nowadays is is way too long. <laughs> can I have a job? And the editors, you know, it was a very friendly, family friendly magazine. But the editors said, "Well, it takes a lot more than that to work at Nintendo, and it really does. You know, you need to you need to come into this prepared to to learn a craft and how to apply it, and not just you know be able to um, recite every Pokemon ever made or something." <laughs>
1: Are your books – I can't actually even tell. Are they self-published or are some of them self-published?
2: Some of them are. Um, Breakout, Shovel Knight – there's one more, I think. Uh, they're not. Uh, Garden Chronicles, which is my ongoing series of fantasy books for young adults. Um, I sold those. Uh, Rocket Jump was kind of self-published. I wrote it for Shack News and Asif and I – Entered into a publishing partnership last year. I imagine that I think that's how you read Rocket Jump. You probably read it on Kindle or a paperback. I, or I
1: ordered the hard copy from Amazon, yeah. Yeah,
2: right, right. So, yeah, that's uh, Shaq News technically published that. Um, Stay While well and Listen it was self published because I had, you know, if you, I, I know you read a lot of Stay While well and Listen One. Yeah, you like it a lot. You look at that format where I use block quotes. Um, I don't do that in Stay While well and Listen Two. Um, one reason was because I think a lot of uh, enough people from stay while well and listen one who liked it said, you know, the block quotes going between those and the paragraphs of, um, of descriptive or expository text was kind of jarring, but I, I didn't want to shop it around to a publisher cause I wanted to try uh, again in the spirit of, of early game development. I wanted to experiment uh, and I did, and and some things worked and some things didn't. Uh, so stay while well listen is self-published, um, I, I kind of do that on a case by case basis. I had another one come out recently, uh, Arcade Perfect, which I'm really proud of, but it was, it was pretty rough in terms of editing because I had to work on that one, uh, on my own and the deadline was pretty tight. So I'm still proud of it, but I wish it were a lot cleaner. And so I guess the short answer is, you know, I, I, I do both traditional and uh, self-publishing. And the reason I would actually encourage uh, writers to shop their work to websites or shop their books to traditional publishers to at least try that route is because when you work for someone else, you have to conform to their style, which is a good thing because then you learn a different style. You grow your skill set. Whereas if you self-publish and you don't really know what you're doing, no one's going to be there to help kind of guide you and help you grow.
1: Is there going to be a print version of Stay a While and Listen to? There
2: will. So the plan for that is uh over the next few weeks I'll be sending that book to the publisher or to the printer and sending that to Kickstarter backers. As soon as those go out, um the paperback version will be a may- will be made available publicly. I always like to give Kickstarter backers first dibs on on the book. They had they had Stay A Wall and Listen to as of I think October thirtieth and I didn't publish it on uh amazon until like december 12th i think so i like to give them a lead because i, I feel that they they paid that for that
1: yeah well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to stay a while and listen too because it sounds like things get juicy in that in that volume so
2: yes it's a definitely a very very different time <laughs>
1: <laughs> um then i also just wanted to ask you i mean you mentioned that you write fiction i was just wondering you can if, if you wanted to talk about that and is your fiction influenced by your uh games journalism do you think
2: um, it is. I think Brandon Sanderson said several years ago that, you know, for a long time, maybe during the 2000s, uh, older writers, established authors kind of looked down on these, these youngins who were influenced more by video games than books. Now, I do think reading is important. I, I read close to hundred books last year. That's about average for me. Um, by reading, you learn about voices and what works and what doesn't, but, Video games are pretty important too. Um, they offer a type of storytelling that non-interactive mediums such as books, TV, and movies just don't. And so my books, uh, my fantasy series, uh, the Gairdon Chronicles, the first book of which is called Heritage. You, if you read that, <laughs> you can definitely tell I played some video games, but I do ground it. You know, one rule of, of fiction, particularly speculative fiction is you can do anything you want, but when you set rules, don't break them because then readers will notice that's when readers cry foul. You know, you can, it's, it's like, um, a song of ice and fire slash game of thrones. There, there are kind of two seasons on that there's summer and winter and people ask, well, that's how, how long are these supposed to last? Well, it's as long as George R. R. Martin says, he just can't break his own rules. Um, and so, you know, yes, uh, the short answer is yes, I'm definitely influenced by video games. Um, but also, you know, reading and writing is just so important there.
1: So do you think that you would ever work for a, a game company or did writing these books uh, disabuse you of that notion? I
2: actually, I actually have. Um, about 10 years ago, I completely rewrote the script for Hellgate London, uh, which again was from ex-Blizzard North Connections because a lot of those guys, including Dave Brevik and the Schaefer Brothers, went on to co-found Flagship. Uh, funny story, there's an urban legend And I haven't written about Hellgate yet, so I I don't know if this is true. But the urban legend is that the original writer came in with, like, two 24 packs of beer at the end of the night. And the next morning, he was very drunk, and the script was done. Um, And the script definitely kind of showed. (laughs) It, it, It was all over the place. Nobody really knew what the heck Hellgate was trying to say, if it was trying to say anything. So I rewrote that. Um, I wrote scripts for some social games. I actually did write a number of iconic Marvel characters for Marvel Heroes. I wrote um, Cable, X-23, Emma Frost, and I shared writing duties for, let me see if I can remember, um, The Punisher and Mystique. And unfortunately, Marvel Heroes was an online-only game that was discontinued, I think because Gazillion lost the Marvel license, and without it, they couldn't make money, and they had to shut down. So, unfortunately, you can't go back and and play Marvel Heroes. That not only bums me out as someone who worked on it, but as a historian, I hate this idea of a product that you will literally one day only be able to experience through articles, books, and YouTube. Um, And I'm, I'm working on one right now. I'm still under NDA. I can't really say a lot about it, but uh I like writing games because if there's one thing I hate in games, it's games that... A lot of developers brag about the size of their script. They're like, oh, our script is the size of a phone book. I'm like, well, that means I'm not going to play your game because I don't want to just sit there and and read text or read a book that's playing in front of me. I like to explore the storytelling opportunities that are unique to games, games like dark souls do this very well and uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And so it's, it's a different challenge. I love to write. I just love to write different things. And, uh, game writing is something I haven't had the opportunity to do in a decade. So getting back to this has been pretty fun.
1: Yeah, it's cool. Definitely looking forward to hearing more about that as it develops and we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any, just any other um, final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about?
2: Um, sure. Well, first of all, David, I want to thank you again for this opportunity. It was really cool to, to be invited on this show. Um, so thank you again for that. Um, as far as, as me, uh, you know, Stay Wild well and Listen 2 is coming out paperback. Check out Arcade Perfect, which is on Amazon and should also be in stores. Um, you can follow along with me on Twitter at David L. Craddock or my website, www.davidlcraddock.com.
1: All right, great. So we've been speaking with David L. Craddock
0: about his books Stay a While and Listen and Rocket Jump. So David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David L. Craddock for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution... You can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So a big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com music and voiceover produced by yours truly jack kincaid if you enjoyed this program tell your friends if you didn't enjoy it tell no one thank you for listening